Well, we have sung about the cross, and in a little while we are going to celebrate the cross by remembering the Lord's table. And so it's appropriate to turn to our text this morning to think about the cross together. Join me in John chapter 16, John chapter 16, where we are looking at verses 16 through 22. It is an appropriate passage for this morning. It's where we left off last week. It's an appropriate passage because Christ is talking about his impending cross. And he's clarifying why he must go to the cross. His apostles are confused. So he's bringing some clarity here. This is also a passage that's meant to calm his apostles' anxious hearts and move them from sorrow to joy. Thus, Jesus will assure them that his cross and all the horror that he will experience will actually be for their good. Let's read the text starting in verse 16. A little while and you will no longer see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. Some of his disciples then said to one another, what is this thing he is telling us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me, and because I go to the Father. So they were saying, what is this that he says about a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wished to question him, and he said to them, are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too have grief now but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. You can stop there. Now remember how we're working our way through this passage. We are looking at five clarifying lessons that Jesus is teaching his apostles about his coming cross. Five lessons and then we're taking those same lessons And we're applying those lessons to us today. That's how we're working our way through this text. And we're taking this approach for two reasons. Two reasons. The first reason is because the believer must never move on from the cross. The believer must never move on from Christ's cross. Let's put it another way. Because the cross is the center of everything that matters for the Christian, the Christian must love the cross and think often of the cross and apply the cross to their life. This is why Paul was committed to boasting only in the cross, Galatians 6. He knew the cross must be central. This is why we celebrate the Lord's table consistently and often. We're going to do that in just a little bit. Because the cross needs to be on our minds. This is why we sing of the cross and survey the cross and cling 
to the cross. Why? Because everything that matters to the Christian is centered on Christ's cross. In fact, sanctification, we saw this last week, sanctification can be defined as applying the cross more and more to our lives. So that's the first reason we're focusing here. The second reason we're focusing on Christ's cross is because there is a temptation we all face. The temptation is this, to move on from the cross, to forget about the cross, to let our familiarity with the cross breed a complacency about the cross. So that's the temptation. It's a subtle temptation. Why? Because we won't outrightly reject the cross. We never imagine that. But instead, the temptation is to relegate the cross to someplace other than the center of our lives. I'll remind you of the warning we read last week. His name is D.A. Carson. He writes this, I fear that the cross, without ever being disowned, is constantly in danger of being dismissed from the central place it must enjoy. And then he adds this note, whenever the periphery is in danger of displacing the center, watch now, we are not far removed from idolatry. The cross must be the center of our praise. I take that from Revelation chapter five. I see the angelic chorus. Just listen to this scene, Revelation five. The four living creatures and the 24 elders, these are now angels. They fall down together before who? Before the lamb. That's cross language. And they sang a new song. And they're saying this, worthy are you. Why? For you were slain. That's cross language. And through that being slain, you purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Then John looked. He heard the voice of many angels, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, and just imagine the scene, it's echoing now through the throne room of God. Worthy is the lamb that was slain. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. The four living creatures kept saying, amen, amen, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. That is cross-centered praise. That is perfect worship. cross is to be the message we proclaim. We preach Christ crucified. The cross is to be how we are known, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. We sang it earlier, the cross is to be our boast. What do you boast in? May it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And on and on it goes. The cross is what we apply to our lives. It's what we grow deeper in. And indeed, that is what the Spirit uses to change us into the image of Christ. 
So we never move on from the cross. We only look for more and more ways to apply the cross to ourselves. So that's how we're working our way through the passage. Again, we're noting Jesus has lessened his apostles, and then we're applying those same lessons to us today. We saw the first two lessons last week. Lesson number one was this. Lesson number one, Christ's cross was his decision. Christ's cross was his decision. We see that in verse 16. The cross did not catch Jesus off guard. The cross did not just happen. No, verse 16, Jesus knows the timing a little while and you will no longer see me. And we noted that he knew everything that was in store for him, everything. And yet still he was committed to his cross. Committed so much so that he orchestrated his final few weeks. We trace that out so that he would be betrayed and bound and tried and beaten and executed exactly how the Old Testament predicted. Christ's cross was his decision. Led into a second lesson. Lesson number two, Christ's cross would end in resurrection victory. Christ's cross would end in resurrection victory. We proclaim the cross because Jesus rose again from the dead. And this is what Jesus assures his apostles again in verse 16, a little while you will not see me, but in a little while you will see me. And then drop down to verse 22, Jesus promises, I will see you again. You will see me, I will see you. Which means that the father will accept his son's sacrifice Father will show that by raising his son from the dead. It means that Jesus will conquer Satan and pay for sin and defeat death. These are calming words for these faithful yet fearful disciples. And again, we applied each of those in a variety of ways last week. Let's move on to verses 20 through 22 this morning. The final three lessons Jesus teaches his apostles about his cross. Here's lesson number three. Lesson number three, Christ's cross would bring the world a sinful glee. Christ's cross would bring the world a sinful glee. Notice Jesus's words in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, this is a solemn prediction that when I'm taken from you, taken by the religious leaders, bound by the Roman guards, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. So we have two reactions now to Christ's cross, two reactions. The first is from the apostles. They will weep, sob, they'll lament, they'll mourn. And these two words, when they're used together, refer to loud wailing, deep, deep distress. It's what someone does for a loved one at a funeral. It's what Mary did when she mourned Lazarus's death. The apostles' confusion about Christ's cross is about to turn to deep sadness. They'll experience intense grief. 
They will watch Jesus be arrested and bound. They will hide as their Messiah stands condemned before a Gentile ruler. They will mourn as their Savior's beaten and slapped and spit upon and hung on that cross. We get a glimpse into this promised sorrow in John 20 with Mary. Mary was standing outside the tomb. What was she doing? She was weeping. It's the same word. It's used again for emphasis, and she wept. That's what's coming. It's understandable. Of course the apostles will weep. Of course. Jesus was their hope. He was their savior. He was their king. He was their future. They had left everything to follow him. They loved him. So of course they will mourn when they watch him die. They'll see him with nothing to his name. They'll see him executed in the most heinous of ways. Well, what is the application we can draw from this side of Christ's cross? Simply this. Following Jesus was never intended to be a pain-free, sorrow-free life. That is not a promise of the gospel. In fact, just the opposite is promised. Philippians 1, it has actually been granted. It means graced, sovereignly graced, sovereignly given. It has been granted to you for Christ's sake, watch now, to suffer for his sake. That's the promise of the gospel. Are we promised joy in the Christian life? Yes, absolutely. We'll look at that in a moment. But we are not only promised joy. Sorrow will always be a reality for the believer, always. We live in a fallen world. But notice the second reaction to the cross here. This is the reaction from the world reaction from the world, referring to the evil world system, referring to the system led by the God of this world, Satan himself. This is the hostile world of unbelievers. We are warned of that back in chapter 15. The world hates us. The world hates Jesus, hates his followers. The world loves its sin. Well, look at verse 20. What will the sinful world's reaction be when Christ is killed? Verse 20, in contrast to the sorrow of the apostles, but the world will rejoice. There's a celebration now. They rejoice because of their hatred for Jesus. This is sinful glee that now fills the unbeliever's heart. This is depraved happiness. Personified by the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Let's ask the question why is the world so happy when Jesus is lifted up on his cross? Why is there joy? Answer because the world thinks they have finally gotten rid of Jesus. It's about time. Jesus had been a thorn in the world's side from the moment he came on the scene. Well, now the world can rejoice as they watch a crown of thorns beaten into his head 
and a spear thrust into his side. He's been outspoken about their sin for years now. He was never relenting. He never feared their retaliation, ever. Remember John 7, what Jesus said, the world hates me, why? The world hates me because I do so many miracles. That's not the case. The world hates me because I feed them over and over again, no. The world hates me because I testify of it. The world hates me because of my gospel, that I declare their deeds are evil. And they hated Jesus because they could not manipulate him into silence. They could not influence him to change his message, though they tried. And so now as Jesus hangs on his cross, and it seems like he's helpless, they mock him publicly. They rejoice. He's promised them future judgment. But now they delight in his present condemnation. This is the sinful glee of his enemies. The world will rejoice. And it's exactly what we see take place. Mark chapter 15, the crowd rejoices. The crowd rejoices. This is the one who has healed the crowds, cast demons out, fed the crowds. And yet what do we read in Mark 15? Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. They hated his message. So they rejoice in his death. The religious leaders celebrate. They celebrate Mark 15, 31 in the same way. The chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, that's mocking, let this so-called Christ, Messiah, the King of Israel, that's who he claimed to be, let him come down from the cross so that we may see and believe sinful glee. And even the thieves next to him were relishing in their insults. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Well, understand, the world is still filled with depraved joy now that Christ is gone. Nothing really has changed. That's the application we can draw from this lesson here, this response. The world still thinks that they have won, that they have conquered Christ. They rejoice today because they think the light of Christ's convicting holiness has been extinguished. So I sin abounds. There's no fear, no fear of condemnation. The world can delight thinking they can hide their sin or justify their sin away or escape God's judgment. So there's joy, there's a confidence in themselves. So why the world scoffs with a sinful delight from Peter, where is the promise of his coming? Have you ever heard that? You claim that judgment is coming, that judgment will fall, but judgment hasn't fallen in my lifetime. How foolish of you to, to claim this. 
For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. You, you keep talking about judgment. I don't see judgment. It's this glee. The light has been extinguished. There's no judgment for their sin. And thus the application we can take from this lesson of the cross is that if Christ was the recipient of gleeful hatred and the apostles were the brunt of a blissful retaliation, why would we ever be surprised if that's how the world treats us? Why would we be surprised? If the world finds joy in hating us, go back to chapter 15. We saw that was the lesson that Jesus drew out in great detail. Verse 19, if you were of the world, if you stop proclaiming the cross, if you stop proclaiming the gospel, the evilness of sin, the call to repentance, you stop proclaiming that, the world would love you. But because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Why would we ever be surprised? The world found joy in Christ's death, in the apostles' death. The world finds joy in even hating those who follow Christ today. It's the third lesson Jesus teaches his apostles about his coming cross. Christ's cross would bring the world a sinful glee. It's a depraved delight that carries over to us in our day. It leads directly and quickly into lesson number four. So we're moving now from the apostle's sadness, the world's glee, but Jesus doesn't stop there. He can't stop there. There's a fourth lesson, and this is now Christ promising a never-ending joy. Let's put it this way, lesson number four. Christ's cross secures promised joy for all who come to him in saving faith. This is lesson number four. Christ's cross secures promised joy for all who come to him in saving faith. From sorrow to joy. And right now, in this moment, the apostles are confused. They are confused, and in a very short time, they will be overcome with grief. Grief like never before. And yet, what does Jesus promise them by extension? What does Jesus promise us? He promises that their sorrow would not last. Mark it. He promises that their sorrow would not last. Finish verse 20. You will grieve. Why? Because of verse 16. In a little while, you will no longer see me. But then notice Jesus does not end there, verse 20, but your grief will be turned into joy. Why? Because in a little while you will see me. Their sorrow is connected to Jesus' death. Their joy is connected to Jesus' resurrection. This is what Christ's resurrection does. It turns confusion into sight and it turns sorrow into joy. We know what will happen. The ruler of this world will have his way with Jesus. And yet still, Jesus says, even the ruler of this world cannot cancel the promise of my joy that I give to you. 
Yes, Satan will do his worst. But the Christian's joy is secure. Our joy is secure. Now turn back for a moment to John 15. I want you to note that joy has been a theme throughout this night. Again, sorrow's coming. Confusion is there, but joy has been a theme. Look at chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy, my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. So the promise of joy begins here. Again, sorrow's coming, but fullness of joy is also coming for you. Well, now 1620, Jesus explains the way, the way that he will give this joy to his people. It will be full joy, it will be Christ's joy, but it will also be a joy that must come through sorrow. It's a joy that must come through grief. Why? Because eternal joy necessitates a cruel cross. Eternal joy necessitated a cruel cross. It goes back to what we saw last week. Everything that matters for the believer, every spiritual blessing we have been promised and given, every ounce of lasting joy we experience was purchased on the cross. It's because of the cross that we have the joy of our redemption, the joy of being bought out of our slavery and sin. We rejoice in that. It's the joy of our reconciliation. We've been united to the Father. We rejoice in that. We sang it earlier, the joy of our justification, declared righteous in God's eyes. The joy of adoption, the joy of hope, communion with Christ. The joy of assurance, we're sealed by the Spirit. On and on that list can go. It's all joy. And yet it all comes through the pain and through the sorrow of Christ's cross. The apostles will grieve, but they must. Jesus assures them, for one, that their sorrow will not last here, but two, that their sorrow would actually be for their good. Eternal joy comes through the cross. And in Christ's wisdom, he knew that they needed to experience this sorrow, this coming sorrow, if they were going to be given this joy, which is why Jesus explains this by a way of an illustration. Look at verse 21. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain. That's the sorrow of the apostles, the apostles will experience. Why? Because her hour has come. And for all the ladies here who have given birth, you know the intensity of the pain that Jesus is talking about here. Now, the caveat is it's nothing, the pain is nothing compared to the husband who's watching the wife in pain. It is nothing like that, but it's still pain. We get that. But, transition, but when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. This is a phenomenon in human existence, okay? 
At one point, the wife is telling her husband, you will never get close to me ever again, right? <laughs> and then immediately the child's born. And there's a celebration. And then you have cake, and you cut the cake, and you give it to the people who visit. It's like, what happened? What happened? The child was born. And when the child's born, you forget what? You forget the pain. You forget the sorrow. The husbands forget the sorrow quicker. But you still forget the sorrow. You forget the pain. Because there's joy. And the principle is joy comes through sorrow. That's how the Christian life works. What's the message of assurance Jesus is giving his apostles here from the lowest of sorrows that they will experience the greatest of pain? Jesus' execution, his burial. Jesus says, it will be worth it. It'll be worth it. Because through that sorrow, you will be given the highest and greatest of joys. You will see me rise again from the dead. And because of that, because of that, you will be granted a joy that this world cannot take away. Verse 22. I will see you again. Because of my victory over sin and Satan and death, because of that, your heart, the mission control center of your life, this is not superficial joy. Your heart will rejoice. And notice, no one, all-inclusive, no one will take your joy away from you. Because nothing can separate us from Christ's love, because nothing can ever pluck us from the Father's hand, because nothing can ever sever the Spirit's seal upon us, then nothing and no one can ever take away our joy. Joy that was purchased on the cross. Now we take the promise of joy in John 15, the promise of joy in John 16. It sounds an awful lot like the promise of joy in Psalm 16. In your presence is fullness of joy. That's what Jesus promised. Your joy may be full. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forever. That's what Jesus promised in chapter 16. No one will take your joy away. It's an astounding promise of lasting, eternal joy. But it's given in the context of sorrow and pain. Well, let's draw out some applications here. How do we apply this lesson of Christ's cross to us? I'll give you two. The first is this. Sorrow for the believer is never lasting sorrow. Sorrow for the believer is never lasting sorrow. So what we see happen with the apostles here. Again, by extension, this is true for us. Let's put it in the words of the psalmist. The psalmist writes this. Weeping may last for the night. It does, doesn't it? Even for the believer, we mourn and we grieve. We live in a fallen world. But for the believer, our sorrow, though it's real, though it's heavy, it is always mixed with hope. Why? Because we know that a shout of joy comes in the morning. It's what we read throughout the Old Testament. 
Isaiah 66, when Christ returns, your heart will be glad. It's the promise. Joy comes in the morning. Zechariah 10, when Christ's kingdom is finally established, their heart will rejoice in the Lord. Jeremiah 13, I will turn their mourning into joy. That sounds like John 16. I will comfort them and give them joy for their sorrow. These are the promises that Christ will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. That's coming. Joy comes in the morning. Bring it back to the cross. It's because of the cross. It's because on the cross, Christ bore our griefs and he carried our sorrows. And thus through the cross of Christ, no matter how dark the clouds of sorrow might be, and they can be dark, eternal joy will one day dawn upon his people. That's the first way we can apply Christ's cross here. We can live assured that sorrow for the believer is never lasting sorrow. Joy is coming. And thus when we do grieve, we do not need to grieve as do the rest who have no hope. Leads into a second application. Second application is this. When we lack joy now, in this life, then we need to return to the cross. When we lack joy now in this life, we need to return to the cross. Yes, joy is coming, as we've just seen, in the future. Christ will one day wipe away every tear when he returns. That is coming. But for the believer, joy is a present reality. This is why we read command after command in the New Testament to rejoice. Think of Philippians chapter 3. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. You ask, how, Paul? Why, Paul? Well, when you continue the passage, you can see why. Because through Christ's cross, we are found in him. Paul was found in prison at this point. We are found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. We rejoice in being declared righteous. The world cannot take that away. In verse 10, Paul writes, no, we can rejoice. Why? Because we know him and the power of his resurrection. We're in communion with our Lord and we're promised a future hope, a future resurrection. Joy is now for the believer. Joy is now. I think of Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And you say, how can I rejoice? I watch the news. How can I rejoice? Well, we rejoice when we take our eyes off of that and we put our eyes back on the cross. Because, continuing Philippians 4, we can rejoice now, always, because we have access to the Father. Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, with joy, 
Let your request be made known to God. The Christ cross, we have access to the Father. And the world cannot take that access away. In fact, that is a connection that Jesus makes here. Drop down to verses 23 and 24. John 16, 23 and 24. Here's the connection. In that day, when your sorrow is turned to joy because of my resurrection, in that day, because of my cross, because I give you access to the Father through my death, truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. And now watch the connection. Ask and you will receive so that you're what? so that your joy may be made full. The world can't take away that joy, access to the Father. One commentator put it this way. What else carries the same guarantee? Thieves can take possessions away. Disease can take health away. Death can take family away. What about joy? If you find your joy in sex, money, work, or hobbies, then certainly your joy could be taken from you. But when your joy is found in Jesus, his victory over sin and death and every attack against it will be futile. The devil longs to steal our joy and it's not usually hard to do. Placing our joy in things like relationships, work, events, security, and health is like putting your life savings in a piggy bank, leaving it in a high crime district at night with a hammer and adding a no, asking people to leave it alone because it's really, really valuable. (laughs) You're a fool if you think it will be safe. But if our joy is in Jesus and his cross, we trade the piggy, piggy bank for Fort Knox and the devil gets a plastic spoon instead of a hammer. Again, the application is this. When we lack joy in this life now, we need to return to Christ's cross and remember the glorious gifts of joy he has purchased for us, gifts that the world cannot take away. And the greatest gift that he has purchased is reconciliation with the Father, that God is our God. Those are two applications we can draw from Jesus' words here. You could add many more, obviously. Let's move into the fifth and final lesson Jesus teaches, though. Fifth and final lesson. I've already mentioned it. I'm just going to state it. Here's the fifth lesson. Christ's cross grants access to God the Father as never before. Christ's cross grants access to God the Father as never before. That's what Jesus teaches in verses 23 through 24. Because of Christ's cross, we have been given the privilege. It is a privilege of approaching the Father in Jesus' name. Prayer is a cross-bought privilege. And that's where we'll pick it up next week. Father, you have allowed us to think once again on the cross of your Son, And I pray that the cross would indeed be our boast and the well where we find our joy. 
I thank you for the opportunity that we have now to apply the cross, to remember the cross, to confess sin because of the cross. I thank you that we get to do this together because we are united by the cross. So be pleased as we remember the life, death, and resurrection of our Savior. May it be a uniting time for us as a church, but also a time of worship unto you. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.